The NRA has lost over a million members since allegations of corruption surfaced against its leadership. Plus, Ian McCullen on YouTube taking down silencer videos. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no hold on me. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date on what's going on with guns in America. This week, we are talking about YouTube. So I kind of expect this podcast to do fairly well on YouTube, since YouTube is one of the most popular topics on YouTube in my experience as a consumer on the platform and a producer of content. But to that end, we have one of the best gun tubers out there, uh, Ian McCollum from Forgotten Weapons. Welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you again for for coming on. You're welcome. You're far too kind, but it's fun to be back. Yes. uh, Ian, we did an episode last year, I believe it was. And so uh, we're back again talking about YouTube's moderation practices after they had gone after, um, it's a fairly confusing situation, to be honest. They initially started taking down videos and even channels altogether that appeared to show content where a silencer was or suppressor was attached to the barrel of a gun uh, that was apparently viewed for some period of time. I, I Really, I think it was a couple months there. Uh, as a violation of YouTube uh, guidelines. And uh, they even retroactively went back years to go after some videos on this. And then they changed their minds and reversed themselves. And now these videos are being uh, re-added. These channels are coming back. You were directly affected by this. Is that right? Yeah, almost all of us were. All the big gun channels and a ton of smaller ones as well. But yeah, myself uh, definitely included. I had a video from five or six years ago removed without any warning um, and was given a channel strike warning. So the way the system works on YouTube is if if you do something that is so flagrant that it requires content to actually be deleted off the platform, they give you a strike. The first one's just a warning. Second one, you can't post for a week. Second one, there's some additional uh, penalty. And the third with the third one, they just delete your channel completely and irrevocably, well, mostly irrevocably. Yeah, so I got irrevocably, I guess. Yeah, yeah, irrevocably, um, unless they decide it's not. Yes, that's that's uh, actually a good description of a lot of YouTube's policies. Or it's definitely this, unless we decide it's not. Yes, yeah, and you see this even beyond the gun space. Of course, that's this is one of the most common things that YouTube creators talk about is YouTube's sort of bizarre or uh, uh, inconsistent application of their own rules. And the way that they've changed them constantly to try to appease advertisers is a big topic of conversation among people who, uh, you know, use the platform to make their living, which is frankly quite a lot of people these days. It's the second largest website in the world, right? So, um, you know, the, everything they do is going to have a pretty major effect, even if it seems like a minor change on a lot of people. And in this case, it had an effect on you know, not only your channel, but ba- yeah, like you said, basically everyone in the gun space that's ever done anything about suppressors. And that included things like deleting entire channels of uh, what Kit Badger was one. Um, yep. Silencer Co's channel got deleted. 
Uh, a lot of ammo lands channel got deleted recoil magazines channel got deleted just completely gone uh, over this this issue uh, but then they then YouTube came in and, and said we've made a mistake Oops. Um, we didn't actually mean to do all that yeah uh, well I, we could probably tell a little bit of, from that reaction what you think of their reversal here but but let me give you let me give you their the line that they told me. Um, YouTube spokesperson, uh, when I reached out for comment on the situation, said, uh, well, it took a little while. They they said they were reworked. They, they wanted to address the mistake that they'd made, and they started re, uh, restoring a lot of channels and videos, including yours. But uh, the quote they gave me was, upon review, we determined the videos in question are not violative of our community guidelines and have reinstated them. When it's brought to our attention that content has been mistakenly removed, review it and take appropriate action, including reinstating and removing associated strikes. So I just give us your reaction to that. Uh, I think it, my reaction to that is when they say when it comes to our attention, what they mean is when enough people make a big enough fuss that this might actually get noticed outside of the tiny minority of channels that we're, we're doing it to then we'll reconsider our decision and push back our plans to crush all this content to a later date when people aren't watching again. Hmm. Interesting. So you, I, I'm getting pretty cynical about this. stuff. <laughs> well, to be fair, it was just how many years of, uh, of this sort of thing affecting your, your channel's reach and, and, uh, and income, uh, uh, over these sorts of policy decisions, right? I've been using YouTube since 2011 or 2012 the problems of this manner go back to 2016 for me. Now there was a, there's a cohort of YouTube gun channels who were on it a couple of years earlier than me. And maybe they were having issues even earlier, but for me, it's seven years now of this, this sort of behavior. Yeah. And as I alluded to earlier, this is something that affects very often channels of all sorts on YouTube as YouTube sort of tries to continually adjust the sweet spot for advertisers, I guess, is seems to be what stems from you know a lot of these issues. But but it's certainly, especially in the gun sphere, it's even more uh, severe. I, I think. So one of the things that was particularly notable on on this incident is, yeah, as you say, this is this sort of behavior is generally based around trying to sanitize and bubble wrap everything on the platform uh, to satisfy the most potentially hesitant sponsors, uh, advertisers. But YouTube has a very easy system for making sure that advertisements don't appear on, on content that might be controversial, and that is to simply demonetize videos. And that's usually been where the arguments and the issues are between creators and YouTube, uh, which is to say creators being upset and having nothing that they can do about it because there is no communication between creators and YouTube, to be clear. Like, I'm shocked that you were able to talk to anybody. I have two and a half million subscribers. I have nobody at YouTube that I can talk to, literally. And I'll be honest with you, I was kind of surprised by this myself. Um, you know, I was, so I had initially heard of this issue with uh, Silencer Central was one of the first channels, uh, you know, the, there's a company that, that sells suppressors and they had started seeing this issue of a lot of their instructional videos were being uh, taken down and given strikes and it was you know this was becoming a significant problem and so 
they reached out to me to look into it. And this was before shots show. So it would have been early January. And, um, and, you know, uh, then, uh, as I was started to look into it, then I started to hear about more people, including your, uh, yourself who were affected by this. And, you know, obviously went up to even the larger, the very largest channel, I think is demolition ranch, I believe is the most popular gun channel on the platform. Probably, and there I may be, so, yeah. there may be others. And he's at like 11.2 million, something like that. And he had one of his videos taken down Grantham. Um, it'd be just basically every very basically popular yeah. gun channel. And, uh, that's when I, you know, figured, well, uh, I should reach out to YouTube and try to see if there's some, they're going to offer up some explanation for what's going on or, or something. Uh, cause usually they don't, but, uh, this time, uh, surprisingly, uh, they did, like they, they got back to me, which sort of indicates to me that they're, that they were, t that they were sort of concerned about the backlash that, that had unfolded, unfolded. They got back to you, but they didn't actually explain anything. Like I was saying, they can demonetize videos, and that's what they normally do. And once a video is demonetized, there is no advertiser concern with it because an advertisement will never show up on it. What they were doing on this was actively deleting content completely off the platform. And that is novel um, for YouTube. Like, we haven't run into that before. And for oh, creators, that's downright frightening. There was no communication of any change in the actual rules. There was, in fact, no change in any of the written rules that, that we have that we're able to see. And yet channel videos were being essentially at random hit with channel strikes. And for anyone who makes their living on YouTube, three channel strikes and, and you're gone. It's the equivalent of, of walking into your job and just having a pink slip on your desk out of no, absolutely You're technically nowhere. not allowed to create a new channel after that too, right? In a lot of cases. I believe that is correct. I don't that's think that's policy. really well enforced. Um, right. But yeah, technically some, you're, you're not some allowed people to doing that, but on I, YouTube again. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe you're not allowed to create another channel if you get deleted off the platform like that. But uh, but yeah, no, certainly one of the things they told me actually was that they did not change their policy. Uh, but some of the things they told me and what they were actually doing, I don't think totally line up um, because they had told me that there was no policy change, nothing, not a thing in their firearms policy had changed recently. So what, what was written in there, and I think they changed it, the written rules, uh, you know, what, about a year ago, um, if I remember yeah. correctly. And so essentially they were, their line is that this was not the result of any sort of change in our policies, and, you know, we, we fixed it once we figured out there was an issue, but, uh, and we reviewed things, right. But, but it, every creator that I s have spoken to on this story said that they all tried to appeal these decisions and not only were they denied, but generally they were like immediately denied <laughs> within a few minutes, which sort of indicates, especially the, the widespread nature of it and these uh, appeal denials indicates that this was a policy decision at some level, at least uh, maybe not a change in written policy, but a change in how they were interpreting their policy. I mean, is that, is that what it seemed like to you? Absolutely. And for like, I, I feel like there are a lot of elements of this that are common knowledge to creators that will be maybe hopefully surprising to people who only watch YouTube from the outside. One of them is YouTube does not tell you why they take down a video. It's just gone and you've got a channel strike. And so it wasn't like they said 
you can't put suppressors on guns. And and they didn't, but nothing was communicated. The only reason that that we as a group of, of creators were able to figure out that the thing that was at risk was the, the physical act of attaching a suppressor to a firearm is all of us individually comparing notes and looking what had happened to other people. And, right. and even then, when, the, when I got my first strike on a video, I was concerned. And so I went in and I spent an entire day going through my entire back archive of videos, looking for every situation where I might have put a suppressor on a gun. And I proactively deleted six or eight other videos because you have no warning. There's no appeal to this. I mean, there's an appeal button, but what we saw from the creator community was that there was no appeal. You hit appeal and it's just immediately rejected. Uh, and then there is no further, there's nothing. Um, a lot of the, at least one of the channels that was deleted was one that got hit by like three strikes all in quick succession in the middle of the night. And so the, the channel owner wakes up and his channel is just gone. He didn't have a chance to even try to appeal anything because three of them in a row and that's it. You're out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that's very typical, I think, of how major social media sites handle moderation these days. And the, there's a sort of philosophy behind this approach where they're not going to tell you exactly what the rules are or exactly how they're going to be applied. Because in their, from their point of view, they believe that will lead to bad actors exploiting the rules and finding loopholes. For those who follow along the gun control debate, uh, as probably everyone who listens to the show does, this logic probably sounds fairly familiar uh, to everyone. The, this, the so-called very you know, loopholes that exist in our gun laws, the same sort of idea that you see these fights playing out uh, with things like assault weapons bans where California is constantly changing their rules uh, or Massachusetts is implementing the, uh, the copycat rule. That's sort of like anything that we think is too close to what some of the guns we banned is also banned, but we're not going to tell you exactly what that means. It's a, it's a similar sort of logic to it. Uh, the concern is that people will try to use the exact wording of a rule to then circumvent the rule. Um, and so that's why you end up in these situations where they have written rules, but you still, as a creator, have to kind of guesstimate exactly what that means when you're uh, publishing content to a platform. And if you guess wrong, you know, game over, basically. And this is made more complicated on YouTube by the fact that the people who write the rules for YouTube don't know squat about guns. I noticed they did recently tweak them and they changed this, but I'm still going to use it as my example. For a very long time, uh, the rules prohib prohibited you from monetizing any video that featured thermal ammunition. And I defy you to tell me what thermal ammunition is. <laughs> People are going to say, well, maybe it's tracers. Well, maybe it is. Maybe. I don't know. If it was tracers, they could have said tracer, except that I'm quite convinced that whoever wrote those rules doesn't know the term tracer. Like they don't know right. anything about guns when they, their way to say their way to prohibit monetization of machine gun videos is to say that you may only monetize videos that show non or semi-automatic weapons. Right. It's like, so you take someone who doesn't actually, this is like the, the whole rule set is a big game of telephone because the rules have been written by someone 
who has only this vague idea that they don't want scary stuff, but they don't know how to actually explain what that is. Those rules are then given out in they're, they're deliberately written in a vague manner, and then they're enforced by what I've come to believe are essentially call center staff, probably mostly overseas, who have even less technical knowledge, probably, and who knows what their subjective proclivities are on the matter. These are rules that are impossible to try to. So, yeah, to comply with. And that's that's really that that sort of call center staff, the minimum wage people, which, by the way, anyone who doesn't know how major social media companies handle moderation, that the first people that you get to besides the fact that those are that's probably like the third level of moderation that you're at. You know, there's a lot of algorithms involved in flagging videos and, uh, you know, because they have to to be fair, they do have to monitor uh you know, hundreds of hours of video is uploaded every second to YouTube. And so there's no way to physically have somebody go through all of it, even with the resources of a company like Google. And so they have to rely on, uh, you know, algorithmic moderation and then another layer of algorithmic moderation. And, uh, and then you get to these sort of call center minimum wage people who go through probably thousands of videos an hour you know, clicking on whether this is okay or this is, but, you know, and uh, Facebook does the same thing. Uh, you know, I've dealt with a lot of these large companies um, and I think people would expect that, uh, well, they've got a lot of money. They could just hire somebody like, like you or, or someone else who has a knowledge of firearms. So at the very least, at least bring them in as a consultant so they could say, well, Hey, this is why this particular rule doesn't make sense or what have you. But, um, you know, I'll be honest with you, in my experience with large companies like this, that's really not how they operate. They they don't put effort into that kind of thing, even something like uh, Walmart, right, uh, where Walmart used to be the largest ammunition dealer. It might still be, frankly, at this point in the country. Right. And after the El Paso shooting, they decided they wanted to change their policy on selling guns and ammunition. And they put out this statement that was clearly written by somebody who doesn't know anything about firearms. Um, and they were, they were, they had made these strange uh, decisions on, we're still going to sell ammunition, but it's only going to be like ammunition. That's we are deeming useful for hunting and, you know, not ammunition that is, scary like you said a lot of this stuff is based on sort of high level executives feelings about firearms honestly it's what it feels that's what it seems like uh, and yeah. people who don't really know anything about them and when i talked to walmart in that situation i talked to one of their pr you know executives on this decision and they clearly didn't know anything about firearms. I was asking them questions like why are you getting rid of you know nine millimeter or five five six but you're keeping like these high caliber hunting rifle rounds available. Like, what is the logic? Here? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And she, this person didn't really know anything about firearms. You'd think, but you'd think even Walmart, they have people who, who buy the ammunition to resell. They must have somebody there that understands the basics of firearms ammunition and why the, their position didn't really hold water and make a lot of sense to somebody who owns guns. And, uh, but they just they just didn't put that level of effort into it. And YouTube's even less so. They're not even trying to sell ammunition, right? They're, Walmart's trying to sell you ammunition. At, at the same time, they're 
the high level executives clearly don't know much about the market or, or the consumer. Uh, and so you run into these situations where you have these large companies that could hire more informed people, but they just don't do it. Uh, and it leads to stuff like this. And it leads to this environment that you described for creators, especially gun creators, uh, where it's difficult to, I think, see uh, like the best path forward. And I, so I'm interested in your point of view on this as somebody who runs a major gun channel who makes a living creating gun content. Um, where do you see the best path forward uh, with the future of, of gun-related content on the internet? I see a lot of potential paths. Um, for someone in my position, a lot of it is going to be reactive in nature. You know, I think if I were running YouTube, even if I, well, if, if they let me run it, but put on a specific set of conditions of we're only going to allow this sort of content, I, I would have to think that the thing I would do would be to actually institute a program where at least large channels have representatives, people they can actually talk to, they're broad, they're treated like actual partners. YouTube calls their system the, the partner program, but the partner point is, is a complete joke. Um, it's, there's no partnership at all. It's, you're allowed to run ads on, on your videos. If YouTube had some system whereby at a certain scale, you're actually treated like a partner and perhaps trusted, you know, you wouldn't have to have weird algorithmic decisions made on well-established channels. If you had a system with actual trustworthy humans who could vouch for trustworthy channels, and of course there'd be some mechanism for revoking that trust if it's abused, but like that's that's a system of partnership to me that's a sustainable mutually beneficial system and clearly that's the sort of thing that goes on with the entertainment industry on youtube if i was running a tv channel i am pretty sure that the rules are different for me on youtube than if i am actually an independent creator that's true uh, now from a yeah, creator even in the yeah. silencer situation um i guarantee they weren't striking you know, Universal's uh, YouTube channel for every time a silencer is screwed on in a movie or or really yeah. like gamers, for instance. Like that was the other problem with this interpretation that they had for that, that several months of like, what are you trying to even accomplish with this? Like, first of all, attaching a suppressor to a gun is not some sort of high level operation that requires a lot of uh, brain power. And second of all, it's in all kinds of media beyond gun tuber videos you know what i mean like what are you trying to it, accomplish it's also worth pointing out that and, and this is a little bit hazy to me because again none of this was actually formally yeah put in place but i've had people tell me that they got channel strikes for attaching optics to firearms like for mounting a red dot on a gun and also for attaching 30 round magazines like for just clipping them you know right <laughs> putting a magazine into a gun I can't verify that beyond what I'm being told, partly because the channel you know, did, wasn't actually told. A specific I did person. ask about the magazine thing and didn't get an explicit response to it. Um, just again, the, the same sort of we haven't changed our policy. There's no change in policy was sort of the main point that they were trying to get across to me when we, when I was talking to them, you know, I was, I was sending them all these videos and, 
to their credit, they did actually go through and it seems as though they've restored all the videos they said they were going to and the channels they were that, that had been affected. So they did actually follow through on what they said they were going to do. But but yeah, as far as explanation for why this happened or why they reversed themselves, really didn't get anything to that regard other than just creators were upset. We reviewed it. And so it, we, we realized that we'd made a mistake. That is basically the the summation of their point of view. And so you, you've said here what you think YouTube should do or what an ideal situation would be with, you know, a real partners program. Um, but one, I imagine Obviously, you don't think they're happen. going to do that. Yeah, oh God, no, of course not. So course. I guess uh, the, the question now, and you've been exploring this for years, to be fair, uh, mm -hmm. is what do you do as someone with a significant audience on YouTube but who realizes the dangers in a unreliable platform like that. Uh, and so how, how do you see yourself progressing forward from this point? So the way I see it, there are two large families of, when it comes to large gun channels, there are two different schools of thought. Um, one of them is based on sort of a, a Patreon or Utreon style model of direct viewer support. And one of them is based on YouTube monetization and sponsorship. And these, none of these are hard and fast lines. Everyone is pretty much a combination of both. But for a channel like mine that is primarily supported directly by users, that's a, that's a much smaller number of users than the views that a big channel can get on YouTube. So right. I can take my content and put it on another alternative platform. And as long as I have a way to get my videos in front of the eyes of the people who are actually paying for them, my channel can survive. Mm -hmm. um, now Very similar are, to how the reload works, frankly, okay, to, to be yeah. honest. Uh, you know, no, membership membership it, support. That's that's a classic right. model for, for running a business like this. But if you can and do that, gets, why not just leave YouTube altogether? Because you're always – people are always leaving a, a Patreon-style system, and you need to have a, a, a funnel to bring in new people who haven't been aware of your work who are going to be interested in it. And YouTube is – far and away without any competition at all, the biggest platform for viewing. And so for the reload, I'm sure it works this way for Forgotten Weapons as well. You get a lot of people watching your free content on YouTube who go, wow, this stuff's really cool. I like it. I want to support the reload and I want to read more. I'll go join the membership program. And so right. if you have to move to an alternate platform that has 1%, if that many, as many views, you lose that funnel and and it's a it's a significant barrier to long term growth of a channel. Right. Now, and and even beyond the business aspect of it, because that all makes sense from a business standpoint too. Obviously what you do also carries with it a sort of activism, uh, you know, a, a cultural activism and and political activism. But uh, is that another reason why you wouldn't want to leave, you know, this large platform as well? Absolutely. Um yeah. I mean, really, if you're getting into the business of making YouTube videos, you're getting into the business of creating content to show to people. And so it's always going to be the case, I think, that you want to show it to as many people as possible. And YouTube is by far the best platform because it has the most views. And for the, there's the second group of channels that I would look at where they're primarily supported by sponsorships um, and YouTube monetization as well. Where And those two mechanisms are both directly dependent on number of views, not necessarily in a, you know, a hardcore 
you know, small nugget of viewer base that's willing to financially pay for it themselves, but just views from everybody because that's what sponsors are looking for. They want to get their message to the largest possible audience. For those platforms, and a lot of these guys, by the way, it's, it's not like one dude in his basement with a camera. A lot of these are real companies that have hired three, four, 10, 12 people. Like they have payroll, they have major expenses to maintain. And moving to an alternate platform where they go from getting a million views on every video to getting 5,000 views on every video, the sponsorship money all completely goes away because it's not viable for a sponsor to pay the same sort of money for 1% as much traction. And so for a lot of those channels, alternative platforms just, I think, that's that's not me, so I'm speculating here a bit, but the alternative platforms are just not a viable alternative for them, and they are going to fight tooth and nail to stay on YouTube. Do you see any sort of uh, replacement for YouTube coming up? I mean, you know, Facebook video was a big thing for a couple of years, and then that fell flat. Uh, Elon has talked about trying to uh, create some sort of, you know, partnership program for creators on Twitter and to extend the length of videos that you can upload there. I mean, is there any, you know, Utreon is obviously something you use, but are any of these things real competitors to YouTube in this, in this sort of way? So the best one that I think exists right now is Utreon. And frankly, they're largely the best because, and I think they did this with Othias's um, advice, they've focused on competing with Patreon instead of trying to directly compete with YouTube. Um, they've been a very viable platform for me, I'll, certainly still a, 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 a far second to YouTube, but very good for what they are. And I think they have very good growth potential. What could happen in the future? Uh, whoever knows, you know, there's lots of social media platforms out there that have, that used to be big and are now essentially a footnote. And there's nothing to say that next year, YouTube won't have some fantastically successful competitor and go away, or at least lose its dominant position. At the same time, one of the other big concerns to me, as a person who produces long-form content, and this, I think, covers most of the, the firearms YouTube community as well, all of the social media platforms are really focusing on very short-form content, 30 to 60-second content. They want to be TikTok. The problem is they see themselves going away in competition with TikTok. Well, my 20 minute video on the, the nuances of, you know, how Mauser production changed between 1920 and 1923, <laughs> that's never going to live on a TikTok 60 second viral right. video. Right. And it may very well be that, I mean, the, all of these platforms, your views do not come just from people actively searching for your content. That's generally a very small proportion. Most of your views come from active recommendations from an algorithm where you someone watches a video and at the end of that, the platform suggests to them a couple other videos that they might also like based on what they've watched. And if platforms, as they're seeming to do, focus on only recommending, you know, attention-grabbing 30-second dance videos, nothing against dancing, but our sort of long form informative content is is going to go away, you know, or it, it's going to be inhibited substantially. Although I, I'd imagine there's some Gun Jesus uh, fan cam videos out there on TikTok that are that are probably pretty popular. But but uh, this I, I is don't actually. Even want to know. <laughs> 
<laughs> so if you find them, put them, put them down in the comments. But if uh, th this is actually something that uh, I know has been affecting your channel uh, more generally as well, the sort of algorithmic changes that YouTube itself um, have have harmed your your view counts in, in recent months. Isn't isn't that right? Yeah. Um, when YouTube updated its rules in April, I saw about a 50 percent decrease in views of of older videos. So mm. day to day, you know, each new video that I uploaded tended to do just as well as it had done before April. But the recommendations of, of old catalog videos were, you know, they dropped substantially. And yeah. the, the creators that I talked to who are in the same sort of space, the other guys who are doing the more educational, informative, um, nerdy, boring gun content all saw the same I don't thing think it's happen. boring, but yes. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of people I think would agree it's not boring, but but I but certainly not the TikTok form. Uh, TikTok. I sound like a geriatric man. Uh, TikTok <laughs> format, uh, which YouTube has of course leaned into with Shorts, basically just a total ripoff of TikTok, and Twitter yeah. is also sort of ripping off TikTok with the for you stuff. And uh, anyway, and uh, it's obviously yeah, Instagram with Reels. Certainly, um, that's the new the new hotness. Uh, you know, everybody stole Snapchat's uh, you know uh, little disappearing twenty four hour posts, and now everybody's stealing TikTok's various innovations, if you can call them that. Um, but uh, you know, so you certainly it seems like a pretty bleak outlook. Um, what is it that you uh, see happening with gun content on on YouTube and the internet generally? Uh, and your channel specifically for the next couple of years here. How are you approaching this this landscape? The, the key to me that what I've come to, to realize is I need to focus on um, recognizing the fact that my success comes from a core group of very dedicated, very nerdy people who who love boring content. I'm exaggerating here, but you're underselling it. It's not boring. I mean, maybe I'm just one of those people, but I, it's not boring. But that is the group of people who fundamentally make my work possible. They give me a day job and a paycheck. And I need to learn to, or I need to remember to not be concerned with trying to make viral hit splash videos that those are great. Don't get me wrong. I'd love it if every video I did got a bajillion views, but in order to be successful, I need to always remember the fundamentals of what I'm doing, which is creating a digital archive of firearms history. And as long as I do that, forgotten weapons will survive. Um, it's easy to, to look at someone else doing better or look at conditions generally looking like they're worse than they were last year and get discouraged by things. And I think it's more important to recognize that there is still an unbelievable opportunity out there that... 20 years ago, none of this was even technologically possible. Um, and so it really is a blessing to be able to do what I do. And, and I will continue to do it until something changes that makes it impossible for me to do. Not, I, I don't need to try and hop off a bus because, well, the elevator slowed down a bit, so I better go find something else to do. No, no, I can, I can and will keep doing this until something actually physically prevents me from doing so because I love it. I love what I do. I, I get rejuvenation and, and energy from 
finding that cool new gun, cool new old gun that I've never seen before and tearing it apart and learning its history and, and learning its backstory. And that's what I need to focus on. Absolutely. And and look, I think that really comes through in the videos, which is why they're not boring. But uh, let's focus on the that positive side of things there for, for a little bit more here. What what do you want to do with the channel that you haven't done up to this point? What What are the sort of new avenues. I mean, obviously you're still going to make a lot of the, the core videos that you enjoy these teardowns and these fascinating forgotten weapons as the, the channel's name uh, implies, but uh, you know, what are some of the new things we might see from you uh, in the, the, the next year or the next couple of years moving forward? Um, right now, my bigger project is, well, not bigger, but my, my new, newer project is working a little bit more on book content, book production. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I have two in, in particular that I'm in process of doing right now that I, I frankly found that I love the process of, of researching and writing books. So I'm working on one on the history of silencers and mm -hmm. I'm working on one on, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, I'm working on one on Finnish firearms. And so I'm excited about those. I'm going to be spending a lot of my time, uh, working on those projects. Um, well, basically I'm, I'm not trying to do anything really huge and new and splashy in terms of video content. I'm going to maintain the standard of video content that I've been doing um, and, and use my additional time to work on some books this year. And are you going to continue to incorporate some of that book research into the videos like you've done the last year or so? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I just, I finished doing the the chapter on the Maxim silencer company. And found some, all sorts of really cool stuff that I hadn't realized before that that will make for some really good videos on on Maxim silencers and and some of the technology surrounding that uh, when we get to the point that the book's ready to go. Yeah, you know, you just did a video on uh, you know short barrel rifles and how that sort of became a thing in American law and sort of controversy and how it made its way into the NFA and and so forth. I, I wonder if the Something like that about silencers wouldn't be, uh, you know, in the book. Probably the cards should, too. because the that's, story it's is almost as good. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, not we, quite as obvious, cut and dried of a thing as it was mm -hmm. with the short barreled stuff. But yeah, the the legal rationale for suppressors in the NFA is is equally stupid. And it's it's fascinating the way that that device has become divisive. Um, didn't mean to use that alliteration there, but it works. Um, in, in America for firearms, when it's also a device that we require on all cars, it's the same exact concept and technology. And made by the same company. Yeah. Like the it was the Maxim, company. Maxim had two companies. He had the Maxim silent firearms company and he had the Maxim silencer company. And when he started, the muffler he would sell you for your car or your little industrial engine was called a silencer because they were noisy and he didn't want them to be noisy. So you'd silence them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fascinating bit of history, how things turn the way they do, uh, especially uh, when they're connected to firearms. And and so, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to that book and to perhaps some videos on on the topic as well. Uh, on you know, more of the political history. I mean, that's that's obviously more I focus more on. Um, but uh, tell us about some uh, some upcoming videos that perhaps you're working on that that you're excited about. 
Maybe some, uh, so I, I normally I don't guns? like tease. I don't like teasing <laughs> stuff in case it doesn't actually work out. Like stuff can fall apart for any number of reasons, but mm. the really cool run right now that I'll tease just because it's you <laughs> is hopefully I will be doing some video in which I essentially airborne assault out of an Alouette helicopter in lizard stripe with a map 49. No, that sounds <laughs> I'm fun. really excited for it. That's going to be so cool and so much fun. And <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Um, I really hope it works out. That's fantastic. You know, and that's, uh, that's another thing I enjoy about your channel is that there, you know, there's sort of the, the bread and butter stuff of the disassemblies and the, you know, showing us the guns and, and taking them to the range and shooting them and how they function uh, in their history. But then there's, you also, get into military history as well on, you know, going to battlefields, uh, going to, you know, historical uh, event, places where historical events took place and explaining those. And, and then even getting into some, some modern firearms too, like the, you know, the Lago alien was, was one that you were excited about last year. You've done a couple of these, uh, you know, not just historical guns, but um, you know, some of these modern, firearms that are doing things a little bit differently than the rest of the market do you uh are there any of those that you have uh seen lately that that have uh, sort of piqued your interest i'm pretty interested in several of the new guns that showed up at shot show this year uh so well, i have rock one island, and so i'm wondering well, the, yeah, well, the rock island 5.0 is one that's, of that's the, one. the one you were thinking of yes um I, I definitely want to get my hands on one of those and play with it. Um, I'm also really interested in Smith & Wesson's 5.7. Mm. Um, it appears to have a, a pretty intriguing, basically it's a gas-assisted rotating barrel lockup. Um, not entirely sure because I was fondling one at shot, but they wouldn't let me take it apart and they wouldn't <laughs> go away and leave me alone long enough to do it without them noticing. <laughs> well, <laughs> they probably knew who you were, so... <laughs> uh, you know, word gets around, I guess. Uh, but I'm very interested in that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, like there was a company there that's making carbon fiber suppressors that mm -hmm. weigh like nothing. And that was very intriguing to me. So it's not always the, the really fancy technology. Sometimes it's, it's the simple stuff that's a, a, just a little bit different and a little bit innovative that can be, I think, really interesting. I, I love the technology for technology's sake. Yeah. Yeah, no, same here. I mean, you know, obviously the market's full of grounding tilt barrel actions, which and it's that way for a reason. It's very reliable and good design. But uh, but it's always interesting when there's something a little bit different, even if it's something that or maybe especially if it's something that borrows from uh, technology that was in some of these forgotten weapons from the past. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see how they get applied in, in modern firearms and that RIA 5.0 uh, is is one of those examples of a gun that's uh uses a totally different recoil system from what most other firearms use just like the Lago uh Alien does as well except the, the big difference is that the Lago Alien is $5000 and the RIA <laughs> is 900 so I might actually buy one of those <laughs> I want to get the I want to get that Rock Island and see how similar it is to my Type 94 name cuz apparently mm. they're both vertically traveling locking blocks Mhm mm yep that uh, but it's a, it's a proprietary design of that system. So it's, it's certainly interesting. I mean, it also shares a lot with the CZs with the, the low, uh, bore axis, um, and, and yeah, pretty fascinating firearm, especially from a company like that too. That's really yeah. uh, evolved in the last couple of, 
years here from from what they used to do making like surplus uh, 1911s in the old Filipino factories uh, for sure. You know, and introducing their own proprietary designs of really interesting guns. But uh, but yeah, so we're, we're going to look forward to seeing, uh, especially the, the video that you did, uh, were kind enough to tease for us here and, and maybe, if, if, and basically anything else you put out, because uh, I personally do like to watch all of them. And so, <laughs> uh, but we also appreciate you coming on and, and giving us this perspective as somebody who got caught up in this, in this YouTube uh ordeal, I guess we can call it. And someone who's probably going to be caught up in more down the line, unfortunately, but that is I'm the sure nature of this thing. So yep. maybe when another one of these happens, we could have you back on, or perhaps we could have you on again for something, uh, you know, more, more uh, fun in yeah, the future. If it were easy, everyone would be doing it, right? <laughs> exactly. But uh, tell people before you leave where they can find you and support the work you're doing. Uh, so I have my own standalone website at ForgottenWeapons.com. Of course, I'm on YouTube. Uh, if you're interested in supporting the show, I would uh, request that you take a look at either Patreon.com slash ForgottenWeapons or Nutreon.com uh, Forgotten Weapons. So I have links to all of those in the description of every one of my videos. I am also on Rumble. I didn't bring up Rumble because it doesn't seem to be that great of an effective site for at least my kind of video content, but my whole channel is mirrored over there. So if Rumble is your choice, I'm on Rumble as well. You can see me there. There you go. All right. Well, we're going to head over to our news update now. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer, joined, of course, by Reload founder Steve Gutowski. How are you doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty well, Jake. Uh, the Eagles are about to head to the Super Bowl. I think the members will get to listen to this before that happens, but everyone else will hear it after the game is over. So you'll have a pretty good idea of what my mood is at that time. When you're listening to this, if you listen anytime after Sunday night, uh, I'll either be very, very happy, maybe hanging on a light pole on broad street somewhere or very uh, unhappy, I guess would be the other, the other way it could go. Uh, I'm pretty, feeling pretty confident though, which actually makes me kind of nervous just that the feeling that we should win is not one i like well honorary go birds uh to your eagles from me because i don't want to see my division rivals win the super bowl again so uh <laughs> hopefully you are in a good mood next week um okay. but on to the uh the news of the week we uh we just published a series of pieces about some internal documents we obtained from the nra uh, which paint a fairly negative picture of the direction the organization is headed in. If you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your piece. Yeah. So things do not look good for the NRA right now. Um, I know that's probably something we've said for a couple of years, but the big news out of the internal documents that we obtained this time around is the NRA has lost over a million members since corruption allegations surfaced against Wayne LaPierre and other members of NRA leadership back in 2019. 2018 was their best year ever for membership. Um, depends on the source you use. They had claimed $6 million at one point. Uh, Andrew Rulanundum, who's the uh, spokesperson for the NRA, had claimed 5.5 later that year. They're in, the internal documents that we've gotten show that at least by the end of 2018, they were not at 5.5 million, but they do appear to be over 5.3 million. And this year at the most recent board meeting last month, 
Wayne LaPierre, according to multiple sources that I spoke with, said that the organization now has 4.3 million members, which actually makes it the smallest it's been since 2012 when they had 4 million members. Yeah, and uh, no, this is a, a really big deal for an organization like the NRA for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, despite some of the misconception you hear out there from particularly gun control advocates and maybe folks who don't quite understand the dynamics, is that the NRA, you know, gets its clout from the lobbying dollars it spends. When in reality, it's because they've had millions of members that they could easily mobilize to get to the polls, to pressure politicians. So the strength of the organization, the very heart of the organization is its membership. And to see it decline by a million members in just a few years is uh, definitely a rough sign for the organization. Yeah, it's not good at all. And of course, the other thing to keep in mind about the NRA and its membership is, as you alluded to there, the membership is what drives revenues for the NRA. That's where they actually get their money from, is from these millions of people who pay them dues or give them contributions throughout the year. And so with this loss of membership, they've also experienced a massive loss in revenue. They're down over $100 million. And, uh, you know, since um, very recently, and that has created huge holes in their budgets. Um, now, their budgeting process is another topic that we might get into because it seems rather bizarre to put a single word on it. But they had projected to bring in uh, far more money from membership than they did, and they projected to spend far less money on legal fees than they actually did. Almost, They spent almost 50% more on legal fees than they had planned to last year. And that's really blew this huge hole in, in their budget that, uh, I mean, it was, it was like a $43 million, $44 million hole, but the, you know, shortfall between their revenue and their expenses, which they sought to cover with a massive loan, essentially, they borrowed against their line of credit to the tune of $23 million. And they still had an $11 million shortfall after that. So they're obviously not doing so well right now from a financial standpoint. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it, it really raises the question of how long they can keep going this way. No, that's right. Yeah. To, to try to patch up your revenue shortfalls with loans is definitely not a sustainable long-term solution. Um, you sort of alluded to their sort of their budgeting, uh, thought process going forward. And they, they seem to project going forward that they're going to, you know, make up some of the, the lost membership that they, you know, that they went under budget this year. And, you know, maybe we'll see, but it's not, you know, next year's not exact. It's not an election year. There's not, not really the same drivers that you would typically see to, you know, have drive gun rights people to a, an organization like the NRA. Um, so it's definitely right. just, they're on a rough track in terms of, of how they're going to make up that revenue shortfall. Yeah, that's what makes 2022's numbers particularly bad because they were in a really good situation for NRA membership growth. You know, 2022 was an election year that also saw a mass shooting, one of the worst mass shootings in history, which drove political pressure to pass a new gun control bill, which actually did happen in spite of the NRA's efforts, sort of uh, indicating that their political power is diminished as well because of all of this. But 
even though you had this fight for control of Congress, you had a, a president in office who is committed to instituting new gun restrictions, even gun bans. You know, he, the president, uh, one of our other stories this week is that he renewed his call for an assault weapons ban during his State of the Union address, um, even though the day before a uh, new poll had shown that a majority of Americans actually oppose assault weapons bans now, you know, bans on, obviously assault weapons is a similar, sort of a nebulous term, but uh, generally they target firearms like the AR-15 or the AK-47, but usually they affect far more firearms than, than just those two popular examples. But, uh, you know, you have this driving force, something that has traditionally pushed people to want to sign up for an NRA membership to show their opposition to new gun restrictions, right? Uh, that's what happened in 2018. That's why they had such a good year in 2018. You had a midterm election and you had uh, the Parkland shooting, which led to a, a renewed push for new federal gun control laws. And so as a result, the NRA saw record membership at that time. But in 2022, the same sort of political atmosphere that should generate new membership, uh, new members for the NRA, instead, you saw a drop off and you saw a drop off in the number of members that they were able to sign up compared to what they had planned to sign up. And you also saw a drop off in the number of members who renewed compared to what the NRA thought they were going to see. Yeah. And and as we said before, that, that drove a big revenue shortfall, but it also kind of highlighted maybe some of the wisdom or lack thereof and some of their other spending priorities. You already pointed out their legal fees were way over budget. But we also discovered in a story I published, one of their line items showed that they were spending, you know, over $1.2 million on private jet travel, um, which, you know, doesn't, first of all, doesn't seem like something that's very common among nonprofit organizations. But second of all, to do that when you're running $11 million deficits with a $30 million line of credit patch over that, it's just sort of a weird priorities, I think, when it comes to spending for an organization that's going through a bit of a financial rough patch. Yeah, and it's especially troubling at the NRA because that has been one of the core criticisms that former members who no longer give to the NRA and no longer no longer buy memberships have levied against the organization. Is that you know Wayne LaPierre in particular has used private jet travel extensively and without really good justification. They have said in the past that these are this is for security reasons, uh, and certainly Wayne LaPierre has. Security concerns, I think that those are legitimate. He's been, you know, I'm sure he gets death threats all the time. He's been swatted. There's there's people who would like to kill Wayne LaPierre. Like, that's the reality. But at the same time, that's true of many people in public life, including every senator, right? And I've personally seen senators flying commercial at Reagan International. Uh, that's generally how they get around. They might have security with them, but most high-profile politicians still travel commercial on airlines. Like, at a certain level, you know, the security question can't cover every luxurious expense that the NRA undertakes. You know, the, they use the same excuse for why they had to pay for, uh, you know, why, uh, mosquito treatments at Wayne's house or why they were going to buy him an entire uh, mansion in Texas. This was... Right. Uh, you know, this was used repeatedly. This is why he had to go on the 
the, the yacht trips from one of uh, the, the contractors that does business with the NRA that owns this giant yacht that Wayne has spent a lot of time on. That was also uh, <clears throat> the excuse he gave during the bankruptcy, excuse me, was that it was for security reasons. He was concerned after Sandy Hook. So he had to go on this yacht with a bunch of celebrities and, and rich people. Um, you know, and at a certain point, that security ex excuse starts to wear thin. And, uh, you know, I think the private jet travel is one of the less convincing areas where security concerns can justify what they're doing. And, and yeah, I mean, like, they're still doing it. That's the thing. Like, it's been four years since that those accusations first broke. Wayne had to pay back the NRA $300,000 for private jet travel where he wasn't even on the jets. It was for his family members. And of course, he got a raise to match that amount of money that he had to pay back. So he didn't really end up paying anything back to the NRA for that. But you get the idea. He admitted faults for, for that. And it's been a core complaint of a lot of people who stopped joining the NRA stopped renewing their memberships was that they feel their money is wasted because it's going towards stuff like Wayne's luxury travel. And uh, we don't know, of course, to caveat that, that these particular private jet trips that the NRA paid for last year were Wayne for Wayne himself. Although I'd be very surprised to find out that it was for somebody else. Um, or at least that Wayne didn't partake uh, perhaps other people also travel by private jet at the NRA, but um, you know we don't know that because the NRA wouldn't respond to our questions this time. They used to respond; they at least would give some sort of justification or plan for how they are going to make up these shortfalls. But now they've just stopped even talking about this at all. No, that yeah, that's exactly right, and it's uh, it's. It's tough to see, like I, you made the good caveat that we don't know exactly what this, this this private jet travel was for, if it was more of the same trend in the past where it was improper. But it's worth noting that this uh, corruption lawsuit that they've been dealing with from the New York Attorney General is still a very much a live proposition. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, I think it's a little bit of a red flag to see that private jet travel is still a, a big line item in their expense to the tune of seven figures while... It's still a very much live proposition that the New York Attorney General is seeking the removal of, of LaPierre and, and many other executives for similar purchases in the past. Uh, definitely yeah, worth keeping I mean, an eye on, I think. They, to be honest, at this point, it doesn't seem like they are changing any of their behaviors because of this potential uh, legal punishments that the Attorney General can levy. Because, I mean, one of the things we didn't, we didn't even report on this because there's so much out there. But another thing that happened at the most recent board meeting is that the board passed a resolution that allows Wayne to, by his own desire, sell off the entire collection that the NRA has of firearms, including in the museum, without any oversight from the board. Um, there used to be that the board is supposed to approve those sorts of sales. But now it's uh, the board is again sort of uh, shirking its duty off onto uh, LaPierre, which is another thing that has, is at the core of this legal fight over the NRA is 
that the board doesn't provide the sort of oversight it's supposed to provide in a lot of cases. That's the accusation, right? And so a lot of these things that got them into this situation in the first place, they're just continuing to do. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, you start to wonder when you look at these numbers for the NRA, because, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, the, the budget that they projected for next year, which we've also published, is not realistic in any way. They're projecting themselves to gain 20% in uh, membership revenue. There's no explanation for how they're going to do that. Uh, you know, all the things we said about 2022 and why it should have been a good year for NRA growth, all those are gone, essentially, for 2023. It's an off year. There's no election. In political nonprofits, that means you get fewer donations and fewer memberships, uh, in the, almost inevitably. There can be exceptions to that, of course, but almost every time you, you're seeing, you're, you're you know, likely to see fewer people give you money in that time period, not more, not, certainly not a 20% increase. And so that's another question the NRA just wouldn't answer is like, how are you getting to these numbers? They don't seem realistic. And if they aren't realistic, then, uh, you know, that budget is done in a way that has them exactly even at the end of the year so that they aren't, they aren't projecting themselves a surplus uh, before investments and they aren't projecting themselves a deficit. They're projecting themselves to break exactly even if things go exactly to plan. But that plan, it doesn't seem remotely realistic. And so, you know, it's hard to uh, know. It's hard to see how they could cut programs further than this point without completely eliminating some of their key core services. Uh, and it's they're getting to a point where you wonder if they, how much more of a credit line they actually have left to use. And so the, you know, the, the downward spiral as uh, Brian Mittendorf, this uh, accounting professor at Ohio state university called it could be really accelerating this year. You know, yeah, I think, I think that's right. It's the long-term sustainability of the organization is, for sure called into question, I think, by this, you know, you never know, things can change, there's nothing's for certain, but and that we've seen a repeated pattern year after year after year of sort of the similar story, decline in membership, decline in revenue, slash core services to members, and spike legal fees and other lavish expenses like the private jet, for example. And it's just, you have to wonder how long you can continue to do that before you see a precipitous drop off in membership even more than we've already seen and what we, you've already reported on. Uh, it's, it's just tough to see how they pull out of this without some serious changes being made or, you know, for example, the New York attorney general's lawsuit succeeding and, and a, a entire cleaning house of the top executives. So it's, it's tough to see where they go from here, but we're, we're, we'll for sure be on top of uh, whatever they decide to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's just clearly no will inside of the organization to change direction at this point. The the board is totally captured by Wien. Like the, the board is almost unanimously supportive of everything he does. And so anyone thinking that there may be some sort of, you know, wake up call for the board members because of numbers like this, it's, it's just not going to happen. Like it's extremely unlikely that the board will abandon Wien given how 
much control he has over the process of uh, appointing board members, frankly, like the, the nominating committee, the, all this stuff we've talked about previously, it's just, it's designed to weed out people who are not uh, in line with what everyone else on the board is thinking. And so you occasionally get a few dissident members, but frankly, they're often pushed off the board fairly quickly, fairly quickly after like one, one uh, term or even a shortened term. And so, uh, you know, any any hope for internal change at the NRA, I think, is pretty low. They, you know, if you, they didn't give us comment. They haven't tried to justify this massive loss in membership. Uh, but every other time they've spoken about what's going on at the NRA, the message has always been that things are good, things are fine, things are going well, um, and things are only going to improve from here. And so, uh, when that doesn't match up with reality, they just kind of ignore that. And so, uh, you know, any, anyone wondering if the NRA is going to turn itself around because they're bleeding members like this, like it's very unlikely that that's going to happen. And of course, one of the big problems with that is I think there's a lot of complacency out there in the gun rights movement over this. You know, there's a lot of people who feel alienated from the NRA for uh, either because of the whole corruption scandal or because they don't like the politics of the NRA or what have you, who feel that the alternative groups, which to be fair, have grown uh, in recent years, uh, probably in part benefiting from people leaving the NRA. But at the same time, you know, groups like Gun Owners of America, Second Amendment Foundation, Firearms Policy Coalition, while they are much substantially bigger than they were several years ago, none of them cracked $10 million in revenue in 2021, uh, according to their uh, 990s that are available, the raw data on uh, ProPublica. So you're talking about organizations that are tiny in comparison to the NRA. While they may be, you know, you could uh, certainly have arguments about efficiency, use of, you know, their use of their funds they have, might, they might be doing it more efficiently than the NRA or, or whatever. There's plenty of debate to be had on that. But for the terms of pure replacement value, like the, it isn't a one-to-one. -one. The people leaving the NRA aren't all going over to one of the alternative gun rights groups. It's just not happening. You know, the NRA by itself was lost $24 million between 2021 and 2022 last year, or, you know, between 21 and 2022. So, uh, you know, it's losing, it's the, the shortfalls at the NRA on a yearly basis are matching what the other gun rights groups uh, bring in for revenue total. You know, it's like, does that make, if that makes sense, like I'm just trying to get across the size difference here. It's massive. Right. No, yeah, they for sure are still, even despite the year after year financial woes and membership decline, they're still the elephant in the room. And I think yeah. you, you bring up a good point about how, when folks leave the NRA and try to go to one of these other organizations, it's not suddenly going to be an easy replacement because there's a, a bit of a splintering that goes on when someone gives to GOA, for example, and another gives to FPC. And you're really just not going to make up the same sort of heft and well, clout that an organization it, the size of the NRA has. Yeah. And I mean, it's just frankly, the other groups aren't getting all the people who are leaving the NRA. Like that's just the bottom line, I think. Uh, or at least they're not getting as much as the NRA used to get out of those people. And so, 
um, you know, there isn't that level. It's not being made up. And none of those groups can rival the size of the NRA even now, even with the NRA shrinking like this. Even the gun control groups aren't anywhere near the size of the NRA, even today. And so that's that's something that I think gets overlooked still somehow, right, is that the NRA, what happens with the NRA matters a lot in the gun debate. And it seems like people on, even frankly, on both sides of the issue are happy to just think that the NRA doesn't matter anymore or what happens with it makes no difference. It's not true. Um, and so that's that's why this kind of reporting is valuable, I think, in my, in my mind. Like, the, yeah, we've written this story basically several times over at this point. You know, the NRA is in a downward spiral. Its finances are bleeding and they're losing members and uh, nothing is changing internally there. But um, it, we, it's important to keep writing those stories because what happens with this organization matters a great deal for guns in America. So like you said, we're, we're going to continue to follow this um, to wherever it goes. That's all we've got for this week. So uh, make sure you come back again next week. If you like the kind of reporting that we're doing, if you value this sort of insight into what's going on in, uh, well, YouTube, the largest social media group, uh, you know, platform in the, in the world, uh, you know, the video platform or the largest gun rights group in the world, the NRA, then you should head on over to the reload.com and pick up a membership today to support the reporting that we do. We are a completely member funded independent publication. And if you don't want to make the jump into membership right away, you can also sign up for our free newsletter, or you can rate and like this podcast itself and share it with your friends to spread the word. We uh, are available on all the major podcasting websites as well as on YouTube. So uh, that's, those are the ways that you can help us grow and help us reach more people and help us do more reporting as time goes on here. But that's all we've got for now. I'm going to end this one with a nice, uh, go birds. <laughs> <laughs>